Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our God as we continue in the Gospel of John. I'll be reading chapter 18, verses 28 through 38. These are the words of God. Then they led Jesus to Caiaphas to the, uh, from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. These are the words of God. Let's ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, John wrote these words that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing we might have life in his name. Even as Jesus stands before Pilate in these verses, reveal to us the glory of the truth in the person of Christ. Do so in the preaching and receiving of your word by your spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Earlier this morning, we recited the Apostles' Creed, and I always think it seems odd at first glance that the oldest Christian creed, the Apostles' Creed, contains the name of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, a name that stands in infamy. But he is there because of his role in the story of redemption, the deep ironies of the gospel, and the sovereignty of God over and through the free will of man. And for those who have eyes to see, you can see these themes run through the Gospel of John, um, almost uh, uh, interweaving in between them and within them as, as the story is told about Christ and his activities with his disciples, with Judas, with Pontius Pilate, and with the Jews. In these verses, across from this governor of the city of man stands the ruler of the city of God. That's what we have before us here in these passages. And the governor never stood a chance, and he could never see it coming. Standing before the bound incarnate truth, he would dare to spout, what is truth? The apostle would later write, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In the midst of this passage, it is, it is for us to see how foolish so-called wise men can be and how wise men can be who look so foolish in the eyes of the world. That's what is before us. 
Now, we actually know quite a bit more about Pilate than simply what the Gospels tell us. The Jewish historians Josephus and Philo, who both were Jewish historians and Philo a philosopher as well, give quite a bit of history um, of this time period, before Christ comes and leading up to and, and, and even beyond the time of Christ. They give us a lot of detail that help us understand his relationship with the Jewish leaders in Judea, and it was not pretty at all, where he was appointed governor in A.D. 26. Um, and Jerusalem in particular, he's, he's in Jerusalem at this time, his, his um, uh, headquarters was actually in Caesarea, but he would come to uh, Jerusalem and they would set up a praetorium, that would be his, uh, be his office basically, and, and he would, they would set up his praetorium and he would come there particularly during the Jewish feasts um, to oversee and make sure there would not be an uproar. Because there were many different uh, scuttles with the, that took place between the Jews and, and the Romans during this time. So he would come in there and make sure that things remain peaceful during that time. So he's here. He's, he's to be found in Jerusalem during this time of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, this wasn't a desirable appointment at all. Uh, for the Jews were, Jews were known to be quite a problem for the Romans. And for Pilate, this became very true over the decades that he served there. Pilate, um, once he tried to set up an image of Caesar in the city of Jerusalem, and that didn't go very well. It ended in a five-day sit-down, basically, um, before the praetorium, where, where the Jews came and they laid themselves down. They sat down and, and protested that there was this image, this false idol that was being set up in the city. Um, and, and Pilate, not wanting to show his strength, finally said, said to them, look, you either disperse or I'm going to start chopping off heads. And then the Jews, Jews uh, laid down on the ground and bare the, their necks before him, um, say, go ahead, do it. And, and, and Pilate, knowing that this wasn't going to go well in the reports that were going to be sent to Caesar, finally dispersed, let, took, took down the, uh, the image and let, let the crowd go. That was just one of many different times that there was these back and forths between Pilate uh, and the Jewish men. So Pilate eventually backed down, and there were other multiple power struggles that took place, many of them violent, including the time where Pilate mixed the blood of Galilean rebels with their sacrifice. That's noted in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. But repeatedly, the Jews put Pilate in a place of compromise and weakness, and it angered him. He was irritated with the Jews, where he had to give in to their demands. It went both ways, though. He had quite a bit of power, and there were many times that he was violent. He was known um, as having the kind of the highest rate of executions um, for his criminals amongst other governors in, in the surrounding areas. Um, Pilate and Herod, um, Herod being, of course, the, the noted king of the Jews, um, um, were not friends at all during this time until, we're told in Luke 23, until they conspired together to kill Jesus. Overall, Pilate was known as a morally weak and cruelly brutal governor. That's Pontius Pilate. That is the Pontius Pilate that we are introduced here to in verse 28 of chapter 18 in the Gospel of John. So I'm going to walk through the passage and give you a, a few other uh, notes as we, as we go through it. You can follow along in, in your Bible and, and, and read as I, as I note some things. The Jewish authorities, we said, um, are told that they led Jesus to Pilate, in, and they say it was early morning. Early morning, is a, there's a Greek technical word that is being used, and actually means um, between the 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. watch. So it was, it was very early. It's before um, we, we see that the, the cock had crowed, the, the rooster had crowed after Peter's third denial, so it's aiming towards morning. 
But um, it's, it's barely, or if, if and not even yet, sunup as he is brought. That means that the Jewish um, trial that had taken place with the Sanhedrin, all of the activities that had taken place had taken place in the night, which was completely illegal according to the Jewish laws. Um, but had been done in, in order to quickly bring this conspiracy where, where there wouldn't be any uh, crowds around, bring, and, then, and then they were going to bring him to Pilate. It appears that Pilate's a little surprised that they end up bringing Jesus to Pilate. He, of course, knows of, the, of this arrest. It was his troops that had gone with the Jewish authorities to arrest Jesus in the garden, but something's not going exactly the way he seems to, to, to think it would be, go, would be going. Well, the Jewish authorities bring um, Jesus to the praetorium, um, but they don't go into the praetorium. They send Jesus into the offices, into the dwelling of this Gentile ruler, and they don't want to because they believe they'll, they, they will, will become ceremonially unclean, and then they wouldn't be able to partake of Passover or um, of, the, of the week of unleavened bread, at least until they had gone through a ceremonial cleaning. That's verse 28. So Pilate then uh, came to Jesus, or came out to them, and asked for the charges. Verse 29. Their answer assumed that Jesus had already been tried and found guilty by the Jewish authorities, and wasn't that enough? Their answer is, um, if, if he were not an evildoer, would we, um, we would not have delivered him up to you. Isn't this obvious? Look at all of us who are here before you. Of course he's guilty. Pilate pushes back and says, well, then you judge him whereby the Jews made clear that they wanted this to be a capital crime and sentence. And they wanted it to be out in the open, legal, and, um, and, and shameful for, for Christ and all of his followers. But Rome had taken away Judea's rights to capital punishment. It was one of the, the rights that had been, um, the, while they allowed the Jews to rule their land under the rule of the Romans, they were not allowed to, to, uh, uh, to do a capital punishment to execute anybody for any crimes. That's verse 31. John comments then that they, this signified the death by which Jesus would die, for crucifixion was only performed by the Romans and never by the Jews. You recall that Jesus had said more than once that if I am lifted up, talking about the way that he was going to die, well, if he was going to be lifted up by crucifixion, it would not be by the Jews. They, never crucif they didn't crucify anyone. It was Romans who crucified um, criminals and then only crucified Gentiles. They did, Romans never crucified um, other, uh, other Roman citizens. This is why also you may, you may know by the histories um, that, um, while, um, uh, that uh, while, while other apostles were crucified and during the times of the persecution, that um, Paul was not. Paul was beheaded in Rome because he was a Roman citizen. He was not crucified. Well, Pilate returns to the praetorium and, the, and, then, and his question to Jesus indicated that the Jews had brought forth an accusation. Um, are you the king of the Jews, he says. But the Greek text puts an emphasis on the you, as though Pilate, looking at this bound man, asked, you? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus understood the rules of evidence, looked at Pilate, and challenged the hearsay. In essence, turning the tables on Pilate and putting Pilate on trial. That's what's going on if you look at verse 34. Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus, I'm sorry, he says, I'm in the wrong. Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34, Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you concerning me? In other words, do you have evidence or are you just listening to the hearsay? Hearsay was not, it was not allowed in, in, a, in a court of law, e even in Roman courts of law. 
Clearly irritated, Pilate responded that the chief priests of Jesus' nation are making the claims and asks him, what have you done? Verse 35, Jesus had brought no insurrection, no protests, no rebellions. He wasn't leading some kind of charge um, to, to throw down the Roman government. And so, so Pilate is asking, what have you done? And, but, and what he does is he made clear that his kingdom, um, what it was at hand in his teaching, that was, that's what he had done. Matthew 4, 17, 10, 7, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus would proclaim. But Pilate did not know about this kingdom. And so Jesus explains in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my, uh, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. It, was, it would sound silly to Pilate. It would sound like he was making something up. If not of this world, Pilate asked him again if he was a king then. And Jesus gave a moment of opportunity to Pilate to, learn, to lean into that question, to lean into it instead as a confession, to submit to the truth if he could, if he would hear his voice. Verse 37, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Here's your opportunity, Pilate. Everyone who hears the truth, every, everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. And Pilate dismisses it. Dismisses the invitation with his cynical, ironic, and most famous question, what is truth? And quickly leaves Jesus. Then he returns to the chief priests and notice this. This is, this is the day of preparation for Passover. And here's the Lamb of God. And, and Pilate, who will not acknowledge that, who Jesus is, walks out and in a moment of high irony pronounces the Lamb of God spotless. Here's your spotless Lamb of God for your sacrifice. John's writing it this way. John is giving us this information so that we see um, what is going on, so that we see both the irony, the foolishness of so-called wise and powerful men, the irony that is going on, and that in the midst of any man's free will to decide for himself, God is always sovereignly operating and accomplishing exactly what he intends, even if what he intends is, 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 it flies in, op, in the face of opposition of those who are freely deciding to do anything they want to do. God cannot be mocked. God cannot be mocked in any of our activities, any of our words, any of our decisions. God cannot be mocked and at the same time holds us fully and completely responsible for our actions, for our decisions. That's because God, see, God's not, God's not a bigger one of us, you know, kind of moving the, moving the chess pieces around as best as he can and hoping that he can win in the end. Ooh, lost a pawn there. Ooh, lost the castle, but I think I can still win because I'm a really good chess player. That's, that's the way we think of God sometimes. He's, he's transcendent above us. He is the one who is determined before all, uh, before all creation what moves are going to be made, why those people are going to make those moves, and what he is intending through them all the time. That's who God is. He is the author of all that takes place. This is what's being shown to us. In, 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 in the event that is the most atrocious, wicked crime that could ever take place on an innocent person, we find out that God is the one who's orchestrating it all at that very moment as well. Now, I want to notice a few things in this passage that I think are worth drawing out for us to see um, uh, teachings that we should receive. First of all, if you go back to verse 28, 
And this un- unusual um, activity that's taking place where they're bringing Jesus to Pilate. They kind of push him into the praetorium. I don't know how they do this. They push him into the praetorium and hand him over to the Roman guards and they back away because they aren't going to go into that house. If they go into that Gentile house, they're going to be declared unclean. It's going to ruin the party. They're not going to be able to go home and, and hang out with all the relatives and, and enjoy the great feast. So they take Jesus and they want to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean. They think it's important to be clean before God. But, but you have to remember what, what's going on here. What, what had just taken place? In the other Gospels, it's, it's laid out a little more clearly that they knowingly brought in liars with false, as false witnesses to make claims against Jesus Christ. They, they knew they were breaking the law by having this trial in the middle of the night. They, they knew that they, that they weren't following their rules by allowing, um, uh, allowing defense witnesses to come and make any kind of claims. They knew they were breaking all the laws of God. They knew that they were on their way to try to crucify, to try to kill this man, to, to ruin him, um, and to kill him and stop this, um, stop this teaching, stop this mockery of the, of the Pharisees that he had been making. Um, uh, all, of these, all of these teachings of Christ about his kingdom, they were going to put down, but they were going to stay clean on the outside. They were going to make sure it looked good on the outside. And so they turn him over to the Romans for crucifixion. And this is why earlier Jesus had called them whitewashed tombs. He turned to the Pharisees, and in Matthew chapter 23, he lists a number of woes, but here's just two of them from Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. God knows our hearts. God knows your heart. He knows when we are covering for our wickedness with our outward religious practices. He knows how you spoke to your wife, and then you come in here with this smile on your face and and act as though you are right before God. He knows how you treated your brother or your sister, and yet you come in here and you sit up nice and you sing your hymns like like you are right before God. He knows what you did this week in the dark, in the secret places, and then you come here and you pretend like like you're just right before God. He knows, and this is why. Brothers and sisters, we begin this worship service with a time of confession to make things right before God because he knows you're not confessing to God and he's going, are you kidding me? When did you do that? No, he knows and he hates hypocrisy. The, The glorious thing about our gospel is this. God hates hypocrisy and he loves mercy. You have sin on your hands. You have sin in your heart. You have confession that needs to be taken care of. And you are before God who who gives you one of two options. Stand before him as a hypocrite trying to self-righteously look good around everybody else and fall under his judgment. Or come to the God of mercy, confess your sins, repent, and be cleansed like that because of the finished and complete work of Jesus Christ. It's all free and it's all grace. And how many of us still hold on to our sins and try to make excuses for them? 
But here it is. You, we look like these Pharisees, these Jewish idiots who are standing up looking so smug to all of the Jews. Remember, all the Jews have great respect for the Pharisees because they seem to keep the law so well and they, and they keem to, you know, everything's in step and everything's in order and they follow all the right pr- practices. And Jesus says, you're a bunch of liars. You're extortioners. You, you steal from the poor. You take advantage of the weak. I know your hearts. You're hypocrites. And this is, what, this is what's going on right before us as, as they're throwing Jesus into the praetorium. He knows when we're covering for our wickednesses with our religious outward practices. And he tells us he hates it. He hates it. Amos 5. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your, regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Be honest before God. Be honest before God because he's merciful and kind and good. Be honest before God because he's holy and omnipotent and omniscient. He knows it all. And the judgment is coming for every sin, every lawless, every act of lawlessness, every thought, word, deed, and intention. And and the judgment either falls upon Christ or falls upon us. It falls upon you. And this is this is the glorious, the glorious good news of the gospel and the horrible news of those who are going to pretend to act like they're Christians, pretend like they're act like they're following God, pretend like they're and act like they are um, they, they have their lives together just right. Be honest before God, do not be like these Jewish authorities. Because look at what they do. Um, really what we have here um, in the answer that is given when the question is asked by Pilate, what accusation do you bring against this man, is an, is a, is an example 2,000 years old of cancel culture, of the cancel culture mob rule. What, um, he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. There's nothing new under the sun. The, the reply is, is, though, is, look, look at all of us. How many of us up in high places who know he has done wrong? Look, if, if there weren't all the high priests, all the chief priests, all the Pharisees, all the representatives of Sanhedrin, we're all, we're all standing here and we're telling you he's, he's done evil. What more evidence do you need than the fact that we've all told you that? And it begins in just that way. No evidence no numbers, uh, just, just numbers. Numbers of, of how many are saying these things. And how dare you doubt us? And they bring him to Pilate because they want a public, humiliating crucifixion, shaming him and anyone who would follow him. Anyone who would claim that he was right. This is the lynch mob routine while trying to make it look legal and all legitimate. This is the work of cancel culture. We saw it. We saw it ourselves in the COVID management disaster. We see it today in the media and top government officials, in other words, in how they're handling the trans movement with their, with their lies um, and, and complete waving of hands of any other, uh, of any other view. We, we have seen it. We have seen it for generations in the academies um, and institutions that refuse to teach Trinitarian truths. And we're talking about in seminaries. 
and, and Christian colleges, this is, this is why um, Machen wrote his book, Christianity versus Liberalism, where, where it be, has become, um, if, if you believe in the virgin birth, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, if you believe that he actually did the miracles, then you, you're, you're eliminated from all kinds of academic journals, all kinds of academic um, monies that might come, in, uh, come into you to be able to do research, you have been, you have been canceled. That's what, be, that's what happens. Um, it, that, that is trickled down now into our culture. That is trickled down now into our, um, in, into our schools. If you believe in, in a, a young earth, if you believe that God, God created the world in six literal days, if you believe that Jesus Christ actually existed and lived on this earth, that he died and rose again from the dead, if you believe that and talk about it in public, you will be shamed, you will be dismissed, you will be canceled among the world, among just the general culture. So we keep it back. We keep it back. Because we, we know what happens if we talk like fools. If we talk like fools. But that foolish talk is not just the wisdom of the world, it's the salvation of men. That's what was going on. It, it, it's like, it comes across like this. If you have different evidence, if you have another opinion, shut up. The authorities know better. Later, the chief priests stirred up the crowd to join with them in shouting, crucify him. They, they, they went around and they stirred up this crowd that had gathered in the morning. What's going on? Jesus has been brought there and they gather. And, and, the, and the chief priests and the rulers go around and they start spreading these lies about Jesus, uh, getting the crowd to turn around and cry out with them to crucify him. This is cancel culture, 30 AD. Jesus answers when he is asked, are you the king of the Jews the second time? He says these words, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. This phrase is often misinterpreted to mean that Jesus' kingdom had and has no dominion and authority in this world, but is rather an ethereal or spiritual only neverland that is up there. My kingdom is not of this world is oftentimes translated this, this way that it has no effect upon here. We should not expect it to have any effect. It's, it's a dream state that Jesus has and that all the rest of us followers of Jesus have of one day um, there, there being some sweet time maybe up in heaven uh, among the clouds. But nothing about his kingdom here upon this earth because he says himself, my kingdom is not of this world. But that's not his point. That would contradict <coughs> all of scripture's teachings and all of Jesus' teachings on the kingdom. We sang in Psalm 2, <clears throat> where the father tells the son to ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Psalm 72 speaks of the son of David. Um, it was of Solomon, but Solomon, of course, is a type of Christ, the true son of David. Psalm 72, 8 says, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> Jesus did ask the Father for the nations, and he declares that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him on his resurrection just before his ascension, Matthew 28. And Paul tells us that Jesus will reign at the right hand of the Father in heaven until all his enemies on earth have been put under his feet. Jesus didn't run off to heaven because he had lost. 
He ascended to heaven to be coronated, to rule over all of heaven and earth in all authority. And Paul says very clearly, he stays there ruling until all his enemies have been put down with the exception of the last enemy, death. And, and that makes total sense because that means at his second coming, the thing that will finally be taken care of is death in the final resurrection when all of us are raised from the dead. This is the work of the kingdom that is not of this world, but has come to this world. The kingdom of heaven, Christ's kingdom, is not of this world in origin. It's not like any of the other kingdoms that have, that have come from man, from the city of man. This is the kingdom that has come from the city of God. This is the kingdom that has come from heaven. And, it is, and it's not of this world in the nature of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> his kingdom originates in heaven where his rule as God has existed eternally and was brought to earth in his incarnation, where Jesus becomes the second Adam and rules as the second Adam, as vice regent over all the earth, as the first Adam was supposed to do. We share in that heavenly origin now as regenerate sons of God, and so we are called pilgrims because our citizenship is in heaven. We're called pilgrims in 1 Peter 1.1. We're called citizens, our citizenship is in heaven in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. And these, these phrases are often used to talk about the fact that all we're doing is as one gospel hymn says, we're just passing through. Like, nothing's good. We're just, just going to, we're on this treadmill. People are born and some become Christians and then off they go to heaven. And some more people are born, they go down the, and then they off they go to heaven. And, and it's just, we're just passing through. This, we're just pilgrims. We're, our citizenship is in heaven. We don't have, we, we shouldn't even be that concerned about what's going on here because we're on our way to heaven for eternity. That's not the gospel. That's not the, that's not the teaching of Jesus. That's not the teaching of the apostles. That's not the teachings of the scriptures. What are the teachings, teachings of the scriptures? We're pilgrims who have, been, who have set up a beachhead. We're the beachhead of the new humanity, which will, which will be fully revealed at the resurrection and second coming of Jesus, our king. And until then, that beachhead spreads like leaven in a lump, making, making a difference and spreading and taking the gospel to all the nations, converting nations, converting even kings. At the end of that psalm that we just sang, it says, Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And in ancient mind, if the king kisses the son, his nation is converted in essence. When the psalmist is writing this, he's, of course, of course he has in mind the, the, the salvation of individuals. But when a king bows the knee to another king, that entire kingdom is now under the rule of the king of kings. And, and Psalm 2 is saying, ask of me, ask of me, the father says to the son, and I'll give you the nations. And then he turns to the kings and he says, kiss the son and it will go well with you. Kiss the son don't kiss the son, and you and your nation will come under great judgment. But Jesus asked for the nations, and he purchased the nations with his blood. And we are in the, perp we are in the situation where we are watching the spread of that gospel go all over the world to all nations. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're watching taking place, and that's what we're supposed to be a part of in the work of that kingdom going forth. The kingdom of heaven is also not like the kingdom of the earth in that our weapons are not carnal. 
Um, when I traveled through Indonesia with some missionaries, we heard the story of how uh, uh, is, uh, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world by population. You know, people don't realize that, but it, but it was is basically completely taken over by the Muslims by the sword. Um, as, as they went through, and they basically said, would you like to become a Muslim, with the, with the sword pointed at their neck. And they, everybody just seemed to always say over and over again, well, yes, I, I would love to become a Muslim, right? Because they knew what, they would ha what would happen if they didn't. That, that's conversion by sword. That's conversion by the flesh. That's conversion by man. And, and Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of the world. It's not like that. We don't go around... Um, our kingdom is not built on violence and blood and war. Our kingdom, this kingdom, is built on conversions. And the weapons of our warfare are not the sword. Our weapons of this warfare are word, water, bread, and wine. The kingdom of heaven is not of this world, but it certainly is for this world. And so Jesus says, as he offers this moment to Pilate, Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Just as the sheep hear the voice of the good shepherd, so those who are of the truth hear the voice of truth. It's Frederick Nietzsche who said, there are no eternal facts as there are no absolute truths. Except that one, he seemed to say. And, and this, is the, this is the world of the relativist, the pragmatist, the utilitarian self-seeking opportunist. If you are going to be pragmatic about the world, you're going to be pragmatic about your rule, if you're going to be utilitarian and self-seeking and opportunistic about how you live, you are at, at some point you'll begin to compromise what is the truth. Um, because your goal and your aim will be different. But only until um, this, this, so a relativist is happy to be a relativist. Everybody, we're going to be tolerant. We're going to be tolerant of everybody's views. Until, of course, the the, the world challenges a particular view um, that you want to have, or someone challenges the view that you have, and then, and then it really comes down to might makes right. It's whoever holds the most power uh, becomes the, the view of the land, the, the worldview of the land. Pilate, like so many, tried to rid himself of the Jesus problem by handing him back to the Jews. I find no fault in him. But his troubles with Jesus, like so many, had just begun. The problem with truth is that it is so stubbornly real. And from this time, you can see that what happens is, so Jesus is basically standing before the city of man. The governor of the city of man rejects and pushes Jesus away. I don't have anything to do with him. But not only could the Jews not stop the work of the gospel through, through the Jewish, through, through, through Palestine in that day, so Rome could not stop the spread of the gospel through the Gentile world. And Rome, Rome would become Christian one day. Now each one of us finds ourselves before this truth as well. Each one of us finds ourselves before this truth. Each one of us finds ourselves before the truth, the incarnate truth, the risen truth, the reigning truth. And in our sin, in our unbelief, our pragmatic desire to just move along in life, just push this truth away, just, just get on with life. Many dismiss him. They dismiss the idea of truth. What is truth? I don't need to figure out what truth. I'm just going to live my life. 
Others will seek to kill the truth. They come face to face with the truth. They're tired of the truth. They're, um, they want the truth to go away because they want to live according to their own truth. And so they seek to squelch and kill the truth around them because they hate it. They hate what he says about them. And the truth, Jesus, came to die for just such pragmatic and stubborn rebels. That's who he came for. So he comes to you in the the, uh, preaching of his word, his truth. And that truth does cut. It cuts like a sword. But it cuts like a sword because it is the sword of the Spirit in your heart. Convicting you of your sin, bringing you face to face with the truth, and then opening your eyes to see that the Good Shepherd has called you as well to receive this mercy. You find yourself slain, slain in your rebellion and your stubbornness against it, and instead rising in new life, free in Jesus Christ, forgiven in Jesus Christ. And so as you, as you look at the story of Pilate, maybe you see yourself in a number of different ways. Wanting to just dismiss the truth and not even, not even try to figure out what truth really is. Or wanting to stand and rebel against it and try to stifle it, argue against it, put it down, kill it. The problem is, is that when, you, when, we've kill, when we killed this truth, he rose again three days later in complete victory. You cannot stop him. You cannot stop him coming after you if he is kind enough to do so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, open the eyes, open eyes to the truth, to Jesus. Turn hearts and save by your Spirit. Do so here and now this morning to those who do not see and hear. Father, in our land, there are many who need to come before the truth, before Jesus, and see and hear that the truth died for them in order to conquer them and rose triumphantly that the truth might set them free. Please bring revival to this gospel-parched land. Do so to the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.